Before I turn over the podium to Professor Ford Mansrui to introduce Elaine Jones in some detail, I want to say a few words about her myself. Mostly, I want to say thank you. Thank you for being here. And thank you for having been here 50 years ago. When we began this tradition of Martin Luther King Day uh, to commemorate and honor Gregory Swanson as the first trailblazer, we did so to tell his story. We also commissioned and hung a portrait of him in the law school. And we created this award so that his name and story would live on in a concrete way for our students. And I cannot tell you how delighted I am to continue and deepen that tradition with Elaine Jones, the law school's first black alumna. Professor Ford Mesrui has already started telling her story and he will do more. But I am grateful to have this opportunity to thank her on her remarkable first and to honor her for that when she graduated in 1970. And through this event to do that and through a portrait we have also commissioned of her. Uh, we are a commissioning of her that will also hang prominently in the law school and also through the Elaine R. Jones Class of 1970 Scholarship, which supports students dedicated to pursuing careers that promote racial equity. The law school established this scholarship on the occasion of the 50th anniversary of Ms. Jones's graduation, and we continue to enhance it with additional gifts. The hope is that this scholarship and her portrait, like the Swanson Award and portrait, will ensure that Ms. Jones's history and her story lives on in our own oral history, in our historic landscape, and in the lives of our students. So with that, I hand it over to Professor Ford Mesrui and then to hear from Ms. Jones herself. Thank you so much again for being here, everyone. So I am absolutely thrilled to be able to introduce uh, Elaine Jones. Elaine Jones is Elaine a- is Elaine, I'm sorry. I couldn't okay. find my mouse. <laughs> oh, that happens all the time to me, thank you. Uh, Elaine Jones is a civil rights pioneer who has dedicated her life through legislative, judicial, and public policy advocacy to advancing racial equality, civil rights, and human rights. She was raised in Norfolk during uh, Jim Crow under the strong guidance of her parents. By the age of eight years old, she knew she wanted to be a lawyer committed to equal justice. Uh, like Gregory Swanson, she went to Howard before coming here. Thank you, Howard, uh, both times, uh, where she um, degreed in political science. Then Joan served two years in the Peace Corps in Turkey and then became the first uh, black female to matriculate to the law school here in 1967. Uh, after law school, having done well, she did receive an offer from a major prestigious Wall Street law firm, but uh, she decided to decline it and instead uh, join the NAACP Legal Defense and Educational Fund, uh, a, uh, LDF, uh, the National Civil Rights Organization founded by Thurgood Marshall in 1940, uh, because she says that she had committed her life to civil rights and notwithstanding the salary at a major law firm, doing something just for money is not a prudent use of your time. Uh, so she jumped right into the fire. Uh, within her first uh, year at LDF, she was uh, in the deep south, representing black men and boys uh, on death row for uh, alleged rape of white women, uh, during which she experienced threats, including from the KKK. Just two years out of law school, uh, Jones was the lead counsel in Furman versus Georgia, 
the landmark Supreme Court case that invalidated the death penalty for several years, removing 600 people from death row. Other work she handled during her 34 years at LDF, including addressing uh, inequities in employment, secondary and higher education, voting, housing, environmental justice, healthcare, and criminal justice. In 1993, Jones became just the fourth director counsel of LDF, the first being Thurgood Marshall, and the first woman to hold that position, which involved overseeing over 70 staff members, uh, including 25 attorneys in DC, Los Angeles, and New York. Uh, she retired from that position in 2004. She has dozens and dozens of awards, too many to name, that include 16 honorary degrees. UVA honored her with the Distinguished Alumna Award and in 1999, the Thomas Jefferson Medal in Law UVA's highest award. In 2000, Jones received the Eleanor Roosevelt Human Rights Award from President Bill Clinton. I conclude with some personal observations. Would you know a hero if you met one? I do. It was in 1999 at the Clifton Inn, just five miles east of Charlottesville. We were hosting a dinner for Elaine Jones on the eve of awarding her the Thomas Jefferson Medal in Law. Uh, we were milling about having drinks before dinner and the front door of the inn opened and just a beam of light filled the room and it was dark outside. It was Elaine Jones. And I don't know if you've seen that television show uh, Touched by an Angel and these angels in human form at some point reveal that they're angels and the light shines on their head. It reminded me on uh, like that, except the, the light was coming from inside Ms. Jones. Uh, I then had the privilege of uh, sitting next to her at dinner and I am ever grateful to uh, Dean John Jeffries for including me in that dinner. Uh, I've seen her speak here several times before, including at a law school graduation. Uh, and these last few weeks in preparation for this event, I have had the, the tremendous joy uh, and privilege of feeling like uh, Elaine Jones' student. Uh, talking on the phone about what uh, she might discuss, she would tell stories, insights, lessons, principles about her work. And uh, at some point I'm, I'm, I'm literally sitting on the floor in my headphones at the metaphorical feet of Elaine Jones. And I look forward uh, to allowing her to share her wisdom uh, with all of us today. Uh, she gave me the honor of coming up with a title for her talk uh, and uh, it's Navigating Law and Politics in Pursuit of Racial Equality, Lessons from the Frontline. Uh, thank you, Elaine, for being here and welcome back to UVA. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Thank you, Dean Galuboff. You, you are a joy. I mean, and your work is, I mean, you uh, are quite an asset uh, to Alma Mater. Uh, and uh, we honor you, your clarity, your truth, your brilliance, your leadership, creativity, you're wonderful. Uh, Kim, I told you to call me Lane. I was muted at the time, but I meant it. 
uh, uh, thank you so much. I don't know about who was at whose feet, but I think the past week or so, I've learned quite a bit from you. And I, I thank you uh, for this honor. Uh, I also thank the Law Review and I thank all of the students who worked to, to pull the panelists together. The panelists were superb, absolutely superb. So, you know, I missed the Academy and the panel today let me know why uh, the quality of the presentations was just wonderful and the discussions. Now, I have to correct the record on something very important because I thought the record had been corrected, but it had not. Um, I was not lead counsel in Furman. I was counsel, but there were three of us. But lead counsel was Tony Amsterdam mm -hmm. of uh, New York University. And Tony argued Furman. You know, I had the pleasure of being assigned to Tony day one when I hit the New York office. Jack Greenberg, and uh, at that point, at that time, uh, Tony was teaching at Stanford. Subsequently, he moved to New York University. But I had that whole two-year period. Uh, I worked uh, with him on Furman, and I remember when I first met him, he said to me, "Elaine, we have a problem." And I said, "Well, Tony, you know what might that be? I and mean, we have we have more than one problem." He said, we cannot get the record certified to the Supreme Court of the United States. The Supreme Court of Georgia, the clerk, refuses to certify the record. Now, that's, that's supposed to be routine, the certified record. She had held it up for nearly a year and a half. They hadn't been able to get the case up there. Um, so he said, I want you, when he put Jack on the phone, I want you, and this is Jack Greenberg, and and Tony Amsterdam telling me to go to Georgia and don't come back until I've got the signature on that record. Now, I mean, that's, that's showing up, and this is a week later after showing up in the office, you know, but we, 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 we figured that out. You know, you have to survive. I went to Georgia, white female clerk in her mid-50s, and I got in there to see her. And I told her that I was a Virginian and that I was in New York and I was coming to see her to save my job. That without her, I would be unemployed and only she could make the difference. <laughs> so she told me to come back the next day. I told her what my problem was. She became my new best friend and she held up a pen and said, Elaine, I'm doing this for you. And I said, thank you. I got back to New York. We got that case in the Supreme Court and we did it. We were able with, 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 with Tony and Jack's brilliance and, and uh, 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 Lynn Huntley and I working with them. We, we just were able to 600 lives, 600 lives. And, and most of those men were not on death row for murder because at that time that was uh, early 70s, and Supreme Court only decided in the mid-70s death, death penalty for murder only when you take a life. So a lot of them, all, most of them were on for rape. Of the 600, 405 of them were on for rape, allegedly raping white women. So um, it, it was a good win. It was a good victory. And thank you, Virginia, for preparing me for that. In some way, you did that as well. Uh, so uh, thank you. Now, it's a fair question to ask, 
why I am the speaker this afternoon on this subject, this subject of intersectionality. Uh, but we know I'm glad that we moderated my title. So it's a fair question to ask why I'm here. Uh, the panelists have discussed this issue and the intersectional struggles for equality. And uh, I have learned a lot because I admit I am no expert in feminist jurisprudence. I am no expert in that at all. I have had a 36 career, 36 year career, 34 of them litigating civil rights cases at the law firm founded by Thurgood Marshall, the NACP Legal Defense and Educational Fund. Uh, the last uh, 11 of which I was director counsel. Also, I have spent many years in social justice advocacy, urging Congress to establish and approve a strong statutory foundation to support racial struggles for equality. Extension of the Voting Rights Act, adding teeth to the housing amendments, strengthening and weakening the uh, a weakened fair employment statute, Title VII, playing a role in passing the motor voter bill. Now you can get your uh, register to vote when you get your driver's license. And, and I worked with Senator Wendell uh, Scott of Kentucky for, for about a year on that issue. And there was a lot of resistance to that. Hotly contested issue, motor vote, you would think. So, um, I also spent many years working directly to increase the number of African-American judges in the federal judiciary. Especially when Mr. Carter had one of the best records. This is our non-lawyer president from Plains, Georgia, who came uh, into the presidency understanding the awesome power of the federal courts. Coming from the South, being a student of race, he understood it. And he knew how to structure his Justice Department and his White House counsel's office to make sure that he could get input from not only prosecutors across the country, but from civil rights lawyers and lawyers in the public interest and other lawyers uh, who would be nominees for the federal bench. And not only did he put their names in the hat, they were selected. And he had he has one of the best records to date of any president in terms of nominating African-Americans to the federal bench. He also nominated an LDF attorney, the attorneys who work with us out in the field are called cooperating attorneys. They have their own positions and uh, they have their own law firms. Many had scholarships from LDF, but they work with us on an ongoing basis. And so the first African-American female on a federal bench in the South was from Houston, Texas, Gabriel Kirk McDonald. And she was a legal defense fund uh, lawyer and she was one of, the, one of the best lawyers I have met. And more about Gabby later, um, because I called her um, Miss Title VII. She gave life to that new statute in the late 60s by the hundreds of cases that she filed uh, and won many of them. She later went to the world, to the international court at the head. And Gabby, uh, for a while, we nicknamed Gabby, Gabby McDonald. Gabby Kirk McDonald, she became chief judge. She was, she is extraordinary. And uh, she's alive and well, and she's a, she'll be a wonderful visitor to the law school. She has a, quite a story to tell. Um, now, 
at Virginia, I was keenly aware that as the first, my job was to make sure that I was to help open up spaces for others like me. When you're the first, you want to make sure you're not the last. And so there are certain things you have to do. You have to, uh, I knew I had to succeed at Virginia. I had to succeed. I, I knew I could not withdraw. I had to finish. I knew I could not develop a complex of any kind. I had to nurture and develop a positive attitude. I also could not internalize negativity. I had to be positive. And whenever there was anything adverse that occurred, I reminded myself that I had supporters at the law school. There were people who had voted to admit me. They couldn't tell me they had done that, but they were there. And I had to understand that. I was only there because the university wanted me to be there. And so the dean at the time was Hardy Dillard. And after my first year, he went to the international court, but he was especially kind. Dean Dillard and I took, I took contracts from him, I believe. But Dean Dillard was, was, was quite wonderful. Uh, I did so well, I was lucky that the university went back to my family when it admitted its second woman. And that woman was my sister, Judge Gwendolyn Jones Jackson, who became a second woman who received a degree from the University of Virginia Law School in 1972. And so it's a small one. There were three women in her class, women of color, uh, where her name ended in J, and the other two, they were after J. They were S and uh, R, R and S. And so uh, that's why I can say she was the second one to get her degree. <laughs> Um, I talked myself into believing I could be successful and could navigate the law school terrain. Uh, for I had just spent two years, as Kim said, in, in Turkey and as a Peace Corps volunteer. I was in a place and the Turks told me to my face, kept telling me there was no such thing as a Black American. They had never heard of any such thing as a Black American. And I could not be American. I had to be Arab. And the Turks did not like the Arabs. And so they would call me Arab, Arab, Arab. But also the white volunteers got a lot of negativity because that was a big issue with Cyprus. And the Turks thought US was on the wrong side of that issue. So that was a little anti-Americanism going on. So the white volunteers got their share as well. But I enjoyed my tour in Turkey. And once they got used to me and I got used to them and I lived among the Turks and my students became some good friends and their parents became friends. So after having gone through Turkey, Charlottesville was really not quite that difficult. Now, even at Virginia though, I, I remember something that I think every once in a while it hit my, my, my mind. I was sitting in the ladies' room. There was only one place that we could congregate. Uh, and I had, I don't know, seven or eight, I don't know how many there were of us, about seven or eight of us in that class. And um, uh, my other sisters uh, were white. And we were going into the, um, that was the ladies' room. And I remember the first week sitting in that ladies' room, 
And uh, I was sitting there um, mesmerized by the size of the casebook. I was just sitting on the, on, in, on the sofa, just, just looking, looking at those casebooks. And so this white female comes through as she's, as she's leaving, she sees me sitting there and she said very politely to me, very politely. She said, I know you're taking your rest break now. However, when you finish, would you please clean the refrigerator? I did not fully comprehend the question. You know, Elaine is a bit fiery, but I wasn't fiery then because I didn't know to whom she was talking. I mean, and by the time I realized that she had mistaken me for a member of the cleaning crew, she was out the door. But I, I learned from that as well. I said, this lady, when it dawned on me what she was asking, I said nothing and went on about my mission for I had no space for her inside my head. And that's what I go through life with. You don't clutter your mind up with things that are extraneous to who you are and what you're trying to accomplish. So not only was I at the law school, I had an important opportunity that I had to make the most of. So many other women of color were depending on me and I could not let them down. To be fair, now my professional uh, and personal, uh, uh, my, prof my professional responsibility and what I have done there uh, is work on issues of race. And I'm here to discuss as a woman of color and as a lawyer, how I try to demonstrate that focus in both my litigation and advocacy pursuits. Now, number one, I have learned in these 35 years of practice that coalitions are essential to making progress in the, on the legislative and public policy fronts. If you're going to accomplish anything you've got to be part of an effective coalition. LDF in the late 60s was a partner with the Mexican American Legal Defense Fund, which then didn't exist, in helping it organize and helping it to get its initial funding and working with it as a partner. And for 25 years, LDF was invited to sit on the board of the Mexican American Legal Defense Fund. Um, the same with Pearl Bell, Puerto Rican Legal Defense Fund uh, at its creation. And we work closely with all deaf, the Asian American Legal Defense Fund over the years. All of us for many years were in the same headquarters building and we were able to get joint funding to house ourselves. All of us along with scores of other organizations as I sit here today constitute the Leadership Conference on Civil and Human Rights. This coalition mindset is why Boston could have 57 social justice organizations, including LDF, join the amicus brief discussing the importance of race in the case, 57. This is why major Supreme Court decisions in primary Unracial issues are able to secure LDF support in the high court 
and vice versa. It's a, it's a, it's a mutuality of existence. We support one another. Uh, when there's a legitimate issue that uh, we can raise, we don't go on just to go on. There has to be something that we bring to the case and something pertinent that the court needs to hear from us. So other groups have supported us with quality submissions over the years, such as in the affirmative action cases in the high court that battle that we fought throughout the 90s, and in the voting rights cases, voting rights cases in the high court. We could always depend on solid support because everyone understood the power of the franchise, that it is truly the coin of the realm. Now, second, in social justice and equal rights litigation, it matters not only what the issues are, it also matters who the initial plaintiffs are or plaintiff is. It should not matter, but I believe that it does. And whether that plaintiff is petitioner or respondent in the high court, it is important that it is not somebody that brings to the mind of the court issues that are not in the case. Because you know, you want, you want clarity. You don't want things muddled, unspoken assumptions made that impinge upon a decision that you might get. So you have to be careful. And let, let's do a couple of examples of that. The first Title VII case that went to the high court, that's the employment discrimination case, the Civil Rights Act of 1964, Title VII, is one of our, um, key statutes today, one of our cornerstone statutes today. And sex was added to the, to the um, uh, statute. And LDF had the first case, it was argued in the fall of 1970. And that's where I believe I met Justice Ginsburg. Uh, I don't know where she was, whether she was at Rutgers or whether she was at the she may have been at the ACLU by that time. I'm not sure which place. But LDF had the case and a black male lawyer on the staff, extraordinary lawyer, Bill Robinson, argued the case. We represented a white female. It was entitled Phillips versus Martin Marietta. And it was decided by the Supreme Court in 1971. And she was a white female with three preschool-aged children. She was denied a job for which she was qualified on the basis that she had the three preschool-aged children and that she should be at home. And men were not so denied. And so when Ms. Phillips found her way to us and asked us to take the case, Jack Greenberg, who was then head of the Legal Defense Fund, and I was in my first six months, Really, you know, Furman had me going, but you know, I, I, it's pretty good. Well, you have to go down and see the Supreme Court. You know, you're required to do that. And and so, when you look at the Phillips case, Bill argued it masterfully. It was fortunate, in a sense, that Ms. Phillips was a white female. Can you just imagine the unfair welfare queen thoughts had she been African-American? 
an African-American woman with three pre-school-age kids trying to get a job, it would have impacted that court. No woman up there on that court there. Only African-American was third one, you know, and it just would have, it just would have caused a problem. Nobody would have said a word about it, but it would have had an impact. Bill argued that case, and do you know that case was won nine zip? We won that case nine zero with Thurgood Wright. Make the plaintiff. It, it matters. And so I later asked her why she had come to LDF. And she said, I mean, we were having dinner in New York. She was so pleased. And she said to me, well, I knew you all were good and that Negros could handle this. This is a Negro organization and you're good lawyers you can handle the case. And again, law school taught me this. You don't react to Negros. Ms. Phillips from Georgia, from Atlanta. She's telling us using the word that she knows to describe her. She, the last thing she wants while we're sitting there is to insult me. That's not what she wants to do. And I have to have enough sense to understand that. So then we have a class, an English class right there at, in the restaurant. I said, Ms. Phillips, I said, I am so glad to be with an organization that had the good judgment to work with you. I said, because you're an excellent, excellent client. I said, now, let me suggest something to you. Oh, what is that? I said, Negra can be insulted to many. She said, oh, I said, yes. I said, not Negra. I said, now, let's practice. Here's how, what you should call us. I pointed to her knee. I said, see your knee? Knee. She said, oh, yes, knee. I said, and then your children, you want them to grow, right? So let's do it together, Ms. Phillips. It's knee grow. Knee. And so whenever you think, think of your knee and your children. Okay. So we practice. And she got it. So she went back home explaining, <laughs> you know, that nigra is not proper and that we have to do this differently. But that's, that's not reacting to everything you hear. That's listing, that's understanding context. And, and, and there you can make a difference. Now, um, the second case I want to talk about that makes this point about the plaintiff has to do with a different statute. It's the age discrimination statute, you know, over 40 years old. And we had another white female. Now, LDF is supposed to be representing interests of Black people, and we are representing the interests of Black people. That doesn't mean all your plaintiffs have to be Black, all your clients have to be Black. They're two separate issues. You have to, and you have to be able to understand that. So my staff brought this case to me. This was in the mid, late 90s. Brought this case to me, they said, this is the librarian. Uh, it's called uh, McKinnon versus Nashville Banner. And so they, they said, Ms. McKinnon was uh, fired. She's about 60. And she's alleging age discrimination. And she felt that she would be fired. And so she started to take some documents home. Well, she filed the lawsuit and during discovery, 
they learned that she had taken the, the, the employer learned she had taken the documents home. And they said, oops, that's a dismissible offense. Had we known you were taking the documents home, we would have fired you anyhow. So you that negates your claim. You, 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 were, you were gone, you were history. You know, we just didn't know it. Yes, we may have discriminated. We didn't mean to, but we may have. But you got it. The district court brought that argument. That case went up to the Sixth Circuit. The Sixth Circuit affirmed. And now here we have a two-court rule on what they, the courts have now dubbed the after-acquired evidence rule. Now, I sat back and I thought in the office when the lawyer brought me that case, I said, should we litigate this? You know, do we do, I've got limited money and I've got the whole country. Should I be representing this woman? In a, and they explained to me, good staff. They said, Elaine, guess what? If we let this principle seep into the law in this age case, it's gonna cover against all the covered classes. We're gonna see it in employment. We're gonna see it in the car, everything under Title Seven. We're gonna see it. The after quiet ever because it allows courts to clear their dockets. I mean, you know, anything that will get rid of cases, especially groups of cases, and you, this is pernicious, and you've got to stop this now. It had already, the 10th Circuit had already approved it. And so here was the sixth. And so we, we took on the case, cut a deal with her lawyer that if we felt he could argue the case, we mooted him, and we second chaired him in a high court, and that's another one that we won and snuffed out the after quiet evidence rule. But it was helpful, I think, that she was white female. I think that again was helpful. Uh, and so we haven't heard anything since the mid-90s about an after quiet evidence rule because the Supreme Court spoke so definitively. Um, the importance of legislation to support rights, I can't overemphasize that. I mean, LBF worked for two years on the extension of the Voting Rights Act. The Voting Rights Act expired in 1982. 65 to 70, it had a five-year history, you know, and then again, 70 to 75, another five-year, then 75 to 82, a seven-year extension. In 1982, we got the first 25-year extension for the Voting Rights Act, 1982 to 2006, 25 years. And it took something to get that. I mean, uh, we had to uh, help Congress put a statute together under which we can litigate. And a point that I was making to Kim, you know, there's a there's a uh, inherent um, conflict between litigators and people who are not, who are in the legislative context. In a, you just want a successful piece of legislation. You don't care whether it works or not. It can be sloppily written. Everybody can stand up on the floor and clap themselves on the back. But then you in the Supreme Court every few minutes trying to explain every comma that's written because it's not clearly written. Our job as lawyers is to bring clarity and conciseness to those uh, uh, statutes. And we did that with the bailout provision, all the provisions of the, of the, uh, of, 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 uh, the Voting Rights Act. Did the same thing when it expired in 2006. 
Another 25 years we got. But the Supreme Court did not like the bailout provision. It didn't think it was easy enough. And the court, as I say about section five, the preclearance provision, that the justice critical to us, that administrative mechanism, it keeps us from having to file lawsuits. That administrative mechanism in the Justice Department, what it allowed to happen was they could monitor the states who had the worst reputations for voter suppression. And they did monitor, it was an active uh, section in the Civil Rights Division of the Justice Department. And so what the Supreme Court did was leave us section five, but it took away section four, which is the provision by which you determine who is subject to section five. So as I often say, they left us the car, but they took away the keys. And so section five is there, but nobody's covered by it. And so that's why we're getting all this voter suppression all over the country, and it's a political football, and that has to be dealt with. That's what Martin went across the Edward Pettus Bridge. That's what the people died for throughout the 50s and the 60s. That unfettered access to the ballot, which has now been completely curtailed, is not jeopardized, it's gone. And so we have to find a way to get that back. All right, the other point I want to make is on the Black Lives Matter. You know, it is, and that's a Black Lives Matter movement, which is phenomenal. And it enhanced, invigorated LGBTQ community. That's wonderful. I mean, because they're organized, they're engaged, they're part of the coalition, you know, and they are focused on their issues. And when they focus on their issues, they bring the rest of us along when they need them both when they're in the litigation, most in the litigation sphere. But for Black Lives Matter, it reminds me of the death penalty. It just, it just reminds me of the death penalty throughout the South. Throughout, I mean, I tried death penalty cases. I'm sure one of my colleagues is on the phone now who we, we were co-counsel together. He later became chief judge of the, uh, of the uh, Northern District of Alabama. And we tried case after case. And the prosecutors viewed seeking the death penalty as sport. It was sport. These young black men, 18, 20 years old, they're cooking up charges of rape. It's, it's a sport to see how many each of them could get in a given period. And, and we kept, a lot of these cases we took to the Supreme Court. Got them reversed, got them support, reversed all kinds of confessions and shooting people and what have you. And so we were able to get up, but after a while we decided, look, we can save ourselves some time if we go down here and try a few of these cases. And at least, you know, you know, if we can get some hung juries, you know, we can cut a deal with the prosecutor or something and get the folk out of town. But, but it, 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 so the death penalty and how it has been used uh, over time, Thurgood had a big issue in the 30s and 40s with the death penalty. And it's been used as a tool of oppression. And I, one of the things I hated to see most was just before the administration ended, this last one ended, we rushed all those federal defendants to death uh, in the federal system. It's unconscionable. And so that's something that we have to turn our attention to. Uh, uh, the, the Black Lives Matter uh, movement is critical and is important. This whole issue of police reform. I mean, it, it had begun, we had begun to make inroads, but now I've got to start all over again. There's a ground here that we can meet, but we cannot, 
We cannot have rogue officers sanctioned with our tax dollars with this qualified immunity out here and folks dying that shouldn't die. That is our collective responsibility. And that is a must. So that voting rights bill and that getting rid of that violence and that violence manifests itself in many different ways, not only in police shootings, in all the violence and the, that we're seeing. Justice Department has to get its act together. The FBI has to get its act together. And we've got to clap down on this as a society because our ancestors and forebears have worked too hard to put us where we are and to give us this leading democratic republic that we have for us to let it go up in smoke like this. So we have to act and we have to act now. So I just wanna say, Martin, a quote from Martin, he said, we, never can't, we can never be satisfied as long as a Negro is the victim of the unspeakable horrors of police brutality. It's like we was talk, talking yesterday. I mean, this is a direct quote. He said, uh, it, may not, it may be that the law cannot make a man love me, but I can keep him from lynching me. And I think that's pretty important. Uh, and so, and this one we need. He says, human progress is neither automatic or inevitable. Every step toward the goal of justice requires sacrifice, suffering, and struggle. The tireless exertion and passionate concern of dedicated individuals. And that was collaboration. I like to think with, with Ruth's work, and I reread her cases in the high court, Ruth's work and Thurgood. I mean, she she looked at what LDF was doing. And he, and 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 and, and at that time he was in the high court, but she looked closer. And it's a step-by-step -step process. You can't be cavalier. You have to be careful. You've got to be careful about your stipulations in the court below because they can really hurt us on appeal. You stipulate to the wrong thing and it's, it's out of law. That's all there's to it. You know, so it's, it's very, very careful that our trial lawyers know their craft or associate with people who can help in it. Because once you make that record that that district court judge make, it's made. It can't be undone. You can't undo it upstairs. And so that's, that's a very, very critical le lesson. Um, Thurgood sounds like a minister on some of these things he said, but he's right. He says, he says, racism separates, but it never liberates. Hatred generates fear, and fear once given a foothold binds, consumes, and imprisons. Nothing is gained from prejudice. No one benefits from racism. Now, I have one final thought I want to make because I'm supposed to be shutting up at 2.30. Now, this final thought is this. There are two words that I prefer not to use in the, when discussing equality, fairness, and equal justice. Those words are fear and tolerance. Fear impedes. It gets in the way of action. Moving forward requires conviction and resolve. It's difficult to have those things when you're fearful. Movement work, purposeful work, requires solidarity, 
and organizing and political participation. Fear impedes purpose. The next word that gives me pause is tolerance. Tolerance infers or can infer that you do not have to like parenthesis or tolerate close parenthesis, my skin color, my age, my size, my gender identity, or anything about anything else about me. But you do have to respect my right to be different. Now, respect is the right word, I think, rather than tolerance. Tolerance infers that something is lesser than I'm tolerating your existence. I'm tolerating your humanity. I'm tolerating the sum total of all those things that make you you. I'm, I'm tolerating. It sets me apart from you. It tends to elevate me above you because I can look down and tolerate you. So respect is the word. Respect my right to be different from you. As I have to, to respect your right to be different from me. We all take up space. And I submit the goal should be to live in a cultural, political, civic, safe environment with mutual respect for our difference. So respect my humanity. Respect my right to live my life. And second, respect my right to be who I am as defined by me. As long as I am not physically threatening or emotionally abusive or violent. I have my space, you have yours. And when we must, we must interact. We do so by the same rules, the rule of civility, and equal and just laws fairly applied. The work of committed, purposeful, careful, creative, creative lawyers committed to equal justice and civil and human rights is vital to respect accorded to our profession. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Elaine, for your words of wisdom, and I'm so glad we're recording this because I'm going to uh, rewatch it uh, over and over. Um, so uh, anyone in the audience, we already have uh, questions, but anyone else who has questions, just write them in the Q&A function at the bottom of the screen. Uh, and uh, let's see, our first, qu the first question I want to read is from a student. Whenever I see a student question, it excites me from uh, Nathan Egan, who's a 3L here. He writes, do you believe that this civil rights and uh, racial justice victories are harder to come by today through federal court litigation compared to earlier in your career? And if so, what other avenues or strategies do you consider most effective for bringing about meaningful change? Did that student have to leave his name? Did have to write oh, just a question? Oh, you just answer. I'm just asking you, uh, Kim. Did the student leave his name? Yeah, Nathan. Nathan Egan. Nathan, if he's listening, Nathan, I, you are not a plant. I don't want 
him or the dean to think that I planted you in the audience to give me this question because I'm so glad to hear it. Listen, you're right. Courts fits and starts. You know, they, 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 they're cyclical. You never know who's going on, who's coming off, or even if you know who's on, you have no idea what they're going to do. All you can do is do your best. But as I said before, Title VII, that employment law, which is the subject of Bostick, subject of a whole lot of laws, is one of the strongest pieces of civil rights legislation we have. That and the Voting Rights Act used to be. But that Title VII that came in existence in 65, LDF filed nearly a thousand charges before the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission because they wanted to shape that law so that it would have all of the procedural niceties and everything. So we, we, we were a major campaign against certain industries, paper, steel, you know, we did all of that. But what happened in the 80s, after we had developed this body of law, the Supreme Court came along and 14 cases they decided between 1986 and 1989, which cut back on, on the employment law. 14 different cases. I mean, just procedure laws, changing the burdens of proof, you know, just, just a class action requirements that we didn't have, Rule 23 requirements, the whole thing. And so now we have a law in 1988, 89, that's just about gutted, really. And so what do we do then? We go to political right. The coalition got together worked with the Congress and tried to really inform the Congress about what was at stake here. And we got that Congress, the first session to pass, to overrule 12 cases. House and Senate passed it. We sent it to President Bush one, who promptly vetoed it, said it was a quota bill. Quota bill, so he vetoed it. But it comes back to strategy. We didn't give up because we had an educated Congress. We didn't want to start from the beginning and educate a new Congress. So what did we do? We went back into Congress, added two more cases that we overruled. So four Bush one had, had uh, 12 cases, but the new bill he had 14. And so then Congress went on, but passed, got it passed the House and the Senate through nationwide effort that we had going on. And then when it got back to Bush one in 1991, he signed it. Why? Because Anita Hill, Clarence Thomas issue had come up. Sexual harassment was now covered in the new bill and he didn't want to seem to be against sexual harassment. So he gave us a signature and we now have the Civil Rights Act of 1991, which is overruled 14 Supreme Court cases. We still have problems, Patrick. You know, cause the court's still been there doing what it does. But there's a ways around it. It's cyclical. Some, you don't want all the institutions operating against you at the same time. But when one, and it's helpful when it's statutory. When it's statutory, you can usually do something about it. Problem is when it's constitutional. I mean, when it's squarely within, you know, the 14th Amendment or something else. You, you, it's hard because only, only the Supreme Court interprets the Constitution. So, so, most, many of these rights are statutory. We've codified them. And so, yes, 
There are things that we do, and we're always looking for opportunities to improve the law. Excellent. Thank you. Uh, this question, I'm combining two. Um, so I think they're related. They, they generally are about, you know, what, what can individuals do if they're not kind of in top leadership positions in civil rights organizations? So one question is, uh, if, if, if we go to big law, big law firms uh, or small law firms, but more traditional legal practice, what can we do nonetheless to support racial justice? Oh, it's wonderful. I, I didn't plan that one either. I, I just um, we work very closely with law firms, also LDF does. I mean, because we need the help. We need the help. And I mean, we had a major case in Tulia, Texas about t 10 years ago, with 10% of the black community arrested for drug charges. 10%, a little town with no sidewalks and dirt streets. 10%, you got 50 black folk when sent to prison. The drug kingpin was supposed to be a 68 year old hog farmer. I mean, and this just upon all these people going to prison, the, the jury, the one hour jury trial, prison, prison. And so when LDF found out about that, we had to get engaged. I knew it was something going on in Tulia. They made a movie out of it. Went to Tulia, found out what was happening was we had a crooked agent down there who in order to get money, he had to show not just on the guns of the Department of Justice to get the grants to come into him. And so he was manufacturing all of these cases. He, one person. Man, but we had to go through something. It took about a year. Uh, and, and Vanita Gupta, who's at the Justice Department now, was lead lawyer in the case uh, on the LDF staff. And I went down there a couple of times. And, and I told the people, I said, look, the 68-year-old, I didn't like, I saw him going down. He'd been in about nine or 10 months. And he was a hog farmer. And see, that's where our country background comes in. I talked to him, found out that this hog farmer had about 75 hogs and that he didn't give them natural feed, that he had to make their feed. He didn't have time to deal drugs. He had hogs to feed that ate three or four times a day. When they say you eat like a hog, they mean it. Hogs eat. I know about that. Coming from that South South Virginia on my grandmother's farm. So, we were able to turn that around. The point is the law firms came in and gave us person power. We had 50 cases at once. We wanted them to move at once. We didn't want to do seriatim. People had been in prison long enough. And so we were able to get them out within a year. Able to get them, and then we were able to get the agent convicted and put him in. But that took, that took law firms. And the law firms enjoyed it because it also gave some trial practice to some of their lawyers who don't get to litigate. And so LDF is open. And uh, you know, you look us up online, you call us up to, to volunteer. Their law firms pay their own bills, and some of them pay some of ours for transcripts and what have you. That's the, that's the advantage to us. But no, there's a working partnership, a working relation. Uh, the law firms help us often with our briefs, the, the amicus briefs in the Supreme Court when you have a whole coalition of folks. We need the law firms to come in and spend time with that and give us a first draft. And so, so yes, that's much you can do. And the related question is, what can non-lawyers do? 
All right, now non-lawyers also depends on what, what, you, what you're doing. I mean, what your expertise is. You know, we have a we have a, an institute, a third good Marshall Institute, where we do social science research. We do, uh, you know, we have archives. I mean, we have non-lawyer positions and we have uh, non-lawyer tasks that have to supplement the work of the lawyers, just like we have in any institution. And, uh, you know, librarians, you have people that, that, that have expertise, archivists that can come in and help and volunteer. So you just have to let us know you want to volunteer. Here's what expertise you bring to the table and let you know how you can be. Fantastic. Okay, here's a question. Uh, in law school, we're taught a lot about how to persuade courts, typically through legal argument and good use of facts and the like. But you also have talked about the importance of legislative advocacy. How is that different? How do you, what's the language that legislators listen to and how do you, how do you change minds in legislators, legislatures? Now, first, that, that's why the Voting Rights Act is so important because, you know, everybody needs to be registered voter. Everybody needs to be registered voter. Then you organize a court across the country. Black Lives Matters did it, got 40 chapters all over the country. That's what you have to do, they get it. The uh, human rights campaign, same thing. They, they know what they're doing and how to go about, about doing it. Um, and then the language, you know, you, you strategize when you're in the meeting, you know, who's going to see who, who has the biggest chapter in this place or that place. You know, if somebody has a small chapter, well then you don't go see the person. You don't go see the house member. I need somebody else, you know, and you strategize all that. Then the visits are made and then the, you know, the discussions are made and then you send the memoranda and you explain things and you, you make it easy on people so they don't have to do an original research. So all of that. But um, there is a, it's the same skill set used in a different way. It's, it's the same writing. It's the same strategic thinking, uh, except you don't have, your plaintiff is the issue. It's the issue that you're trying to get resolved. Like right now, this HR1 on this voting rights suppression. That's critical. So you've got everybody, you've got 200 or more organizations working on, on, on that HR1. And that impacts us all, that affects us all, because we cannot have a democracy where the majority of the people who can affect things can't vote. Excellent. Uh, my colleague Ann Coffin wants to know if you could. If you had to choose one issue that social justice champions should rally around, what would it be, and why? It's two. Okay. It's, it's the two. It's, one, it's, it's the violence. It's the whole issue of you know, uh, you know, this. this I, I don't like the way things are, so I'm going to get violent and threaten people's lives, and I'm going to descend on cities and congresses and what have you. I mean, that has to be dealt with. And part of that is also the police reform. You know, because lives matter. Now, we, if we're not in a safe space, we can't think about or do anything else if there's fear in the streets. So we have to be concerned about that as a community and do something. That's the first thing. Second thing, all of us, we don't have the power if we don't have the ballot. I cannot emphasize that enough. Martin understood that, had it right. He and Thurgood agreed, and I agree with them. Wyatt Rustin, who I got to know, and was wonderful person, one of the smartest men I've ever met. That, they knew voting rights was key. 
was absolutely key. And so those two issues. Excellent. Uh, Christina, look, another student wants to know, can you tell us more about how you create a trial record that will be, you know, right, before, you, before you bring the case, Mm. Before it's before you file the case, and before you even think about a trial, you want to you want to do your research. This is what what do you have? What kind of ground you standing on? What sort of precedent is out there? I mean, before you file, you don't just willy nilly go and file a complaint. That's the easiest thing to do, but it's sometimes not the wisest thing to do. You know, it's not the wisest thing. To do. So you um, you do your homework. You do your research. You know, you decide, you know, do you have a, a, a controlling precedent already, a recent one? Do you have a Supreme Court precedent or not? You know, do you have conflicts on, on the issue? Is it, a, is it an issue that's uh, percolating up to the court for resolution of some sort? If so, you don't want to get in the way of that. You don't want to jump ahead of something. See, if, sometimes you get a poorly tried case that moves fast and gets up to the uh, Court of Appeals and it's ahead of the case that's been researched and has had the experts and it's moving a little more slowly. But your case is one again the Supreme Court to squelch the issue. You, you don't want that. You, you, that's why we, we have responsibility when we file these cases and these social justice issues to know what else is out there in the area in which we're filing. What is pending? Who's doing what? How, and then you pick up the phone and you call the colleague. You talk about your issue, you see what that, so all of that, and then you file. And then you file because you have, you, you've decided what, what you need, you know, you've decided what, what uh, whether you've got, you know, got enough for a class action or not, whether it's an individual case, you decided about um, uh, what kind of experts you need, is in there. I mean, all of that, you know. Then of course you have to figure out your money part. You got to pay for transcripts, pay for file, all of that has to be figured out. And, uh, and make sure you've got enough help, uh, help, got a good co-counsel, you know, and so trial practice is key. Don't rush in there stipulating to things and you don't understand what you're stipulating to because they'll come back and bite you, they'll bite you, you know, on a pee. Hmm. So. Wow, fantastic. Um, I'll read this one, but I'll try to Hi there, I'm going to tap in for Professor Ford Masri briefly because it looks like his internet froze up. My name is Catherine. Uh, we have a question from Meredith Kilburn, who's a UVA Law 2L. We have major civil rights statutes for housing, voting, employment. Yes. Is there an area or field of law you think we should be working for a major statute? I think you should be really looking at the equality issue on the, on the L the LGBTQ issue. I think you should be looking at that. Um, you really, because you don't have any protections. All, all you've got now is, uh, well, you've got, it was a good decision. You've got the um, employment piece of it, but the rest of it you don't have. And so it's like disability and age. You know, we had to get those statutes later. They came after, way after the 64 Act. You know, and one of, and and we found people who supported us. Definitely, Bob Dole was a big supporter on the disability statute. 
you know, because he had to do it. And so you never know where you're going to get support, but you have to decide what you need. And then you have to confer with the affected groups, groups, because the LGBTQ community is more than one group, groups. You have to confer among yourselves, decide what you need. And you got excellent lawyers. You got, you got superb lawyers there. You know, talk to each other, figure that out. And then go to your intersectional folk who've been there. Talk to your disability people, because they've done it more recently. Talk to the age people. Leadership conference help do it all. You know, talk to the race folk. Talk to and let them look at it and see if they can as a suggestion to be made. You know, don't don't shy, don't say it when they don't care about my issue, because that's not true. They do care. You in coalition together, they do care. And they want to help you. They want to help you. They, they, they you know, these are people who care about justice and fairness and about Alexa. Your being able to be you. So that's that's what I would do. But you got the equality statute. I don't know where it is. I think it passed the house last May. I think it did. And I don't know what's happening with it in the Senate, but you know, I, I think that's, that's, that should be looked at. Okay, um, I'm now on my phone because <laughs> we've lost internet at home. Oh, I think wow. because I switched to cable in order to be stable for this uh, event. And uh, I think they're burying the wires and must've disconnected it. Yes, sir. Um, Catherine, could I beg you to read the questions? It's difficult for me to do so on the phone. Absolutely. Uh, I'm excited to hear your answer on this, Ms. Jones. Um, we got an, a question through the chat. Your story includes incidents in which you have been able to build bridges with folks who might seem to be unlikely allies. And these days, the discourse has been terribly divisive and polarized. For those who are committed to eliminating white supremacy, how do you recommend we respond to people who make arguments that deny the equal value of black lives? Do we find common ground with people who deny others' humanity? Or re what recommendations might you have? No, that, that's a tough one. People who, who don't understand the value of life and the, um, and, and the necessity of not taking life uh, wantonly. I mean, George Floyd. What is the excuse for that? What is it? I, 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 it doesn't exist. It's no. So, so I'm not saying you don't continue to talk because dialogue can help over time. You know, I remember looking online at uh, a Black Lives Matter uh, rally, and there was a white gentleman in a wheelchair. They call them wheels, W-H-E-E-L-Z. Did you see it? He showed up in his wheelchair and it was late or something. And he had a sign around him. He said, uh, I'm sorry I'm late. I was doing my homework. That's what he said. I'm sorry I'm late. I mean, it just warmed the people's heart because he'd been looking at the issue. He studied. And there he was with his Black Lives Matter shirt on in his wheelchair with his sign. So you never stop talking, especially if you have access. See, a lot of people don't even have access to folks who think that way, really. And, and that, that could be a problem because you can't move if, if there's no 
if there's no conversation, if there's no discussion, if everything is, is through Twitter and Facebook, uh-uh, you, you, need, you need some interaction, you know? And so if we can get through this pandemic, you know, and get these shots, you know, and get straight, you know, then that can be some in-person, in, sometimes in-person interaction helps, especially if you've got another way to each other, you know? And so I'm never one to say, don't talk, because something may happen. And I have found, I'm thinking about women's right to vote. 1920 uh, with the 19th Amendment. 24-year-old Harry Byrne was the tie vote in the Tennessee legislature. And he had promised to vote against ratification. If he had voted the wrong way, we wouldn't be talking about a 19th Amendment in 1920 anyhow. It'd been some other time, but he was the last vote in the last state. And he gave, it was the tie legislature and he gave it to us. He had to go run high afterwards. But you see, you never know where support lies. Or you never know who at the last minute would decide, I've, I, I've got this all wrong. I need to rethink this. And I'm, I'm thinking those possibilities still exist. Now, I'm not saying it's going to be universal. But I think interaction and contact, as long as you're working on it in your way and you know the person well enough in time, you'll be able to see if there's a change. Or you'll also be able to see if it's hopeless cause. Okay, I, I wanted to ask the last question, if I may, I recall from the queue, uh, and I've been saving it because it's, uh, I think a good note to end on. What, what do you find hopeful in society right now? And what do you do personally to find hope? Well, Personally, what I do is, is I know a lot of this stuff is not happening by accident. You know, it's happening because on some things we've dropped the ball. You know, we waited too long on this insurrection thing. We waited too long. You know, when you have equal justice, you know, with, if you align them up, the, the, the dealt with the insurrectionists the way you dealt with the Black Lives Matter rally, we wouldn't be having this issue. You know, over the years, if the same sort of, if, if people who who supposed to be in jail and instead go home to be with their mama so they can tell other people to destroy evidence, that's a problem. That's a problem. If you look down and in one person, you see somebody who's awful, because they're African-American, it's because of color and skin, and somebody else who looks like a granddaughter, and so you treat them differently. That's a problem, that's, that's une unequal justice. That's, that's at the heart of this problem. Uh, because we all need to be on the same page about our democracy. I mean, there's, there's, there's no room for a lot of, you know, dispute about that. I mean, people, you know, they, but they clearly should be fringed. They should be fair. I mean, our democracy and our forebears who are lying in graves all over this nation, who fought in wars, who have died for our freedom. And we here, you know, we you, you minority has rights, but when we vote, it's the will of the majority. And then your way of dealing with it is to suppress votes so people don't have a voice. You know. That, that, that's a recipe for disaster. And so um, 
you know, we, 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 so that's what the, I, I, I believe in the country. I believe now Martin Luther King at 39 years old wanted to live. He did not want to die. He had four babies. He, he made it clear the two or three nights before he died. He did not want to die. Martin was 25, minding his own business, pastor that church down in Alabama and went to the community meeting. 25, had just gotten to Alabama. And ended up and they made him chair. They came and visited him a couple of days later asking him to be chair, chair of the movement. This particular movement, the buses. And he did. And after that, there was no looking back. And, and Martin, was, Martin was lonely. Martin gave it all to us. He gave it all. He was not perfect. I don't know who the perfect person is. I, I haven't met them yet. I don't know who that is, you know, but when you're doing your best and you're doing it out of love of country and humanity, you know, then we've got to respect you, admire you. Ben Rustin loved us. I knew Ben Rustin. Ben Rustin cared about us. Go to a meeting there, he's sitting there. He's sitting there, the master strategist, master strategist. All of these folk, you know, some names who are known, some who are unknown, but they've been there in the heat of the day when they were needed. Now it is our turn. And we got to speak up, use our voice, use all this intellect we're supposed to have, and we're supposed to make a difference and turn this thing around. Thank you, uh, Elaine. Thank you so much for the gift of your time, your wisdom. Uh, and uh, if we weren't on virtual Zoom, you would be seeing the standing ovation of people clapping. Uh, it had a very great turnout, and I thank everyone for being here, and uh, I look forward to keeping in touch. Thank you. Thank you, Kim. I enjoyed it. Thank you, Dean. Thank, thank you so much. Thanks to everyone uh, who made this day amazing, and thank you, Elaine, for that incredible keynote.